Well, we began our study of Colossians on August 6th. So we've gone the whole semester, we've been in the book of Colossians. I know some of y'all have been here for most of these lessons, and I feel like we've been blessed. Uh, uh, Gunter and Brandon have helped out in the preaching of Colossians. I know they were blessed by uh, their preparation of this magnificent book. What we learned about the book of Colossians was that it was written to some people that weren't that different than we are. Colossae was a small city, not particularly notable for anything. We've talked about how it was off the beaten path, so off the beaten path that even all through history, nobody's even bothered to go excavate the town. So we don't really know that much about Colossae other than what we read here in this letter. We know that there was a little church there in Colossae that was struggling. It was being influenced and infiltrated by false teachers. And so Paul sent this letter to remind them of the centrality and the preeminence, or as we talked about in August 6th in our first sermon, the theme of this book, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the greatness of Jesus Christ. While those Greek false teachers taught that there were many great gods, what Paul wanted to do was to teach them that there is just one God, and He is great. His name is Jesus Christ, and He is preeminent in this entire universe. The church had been planted principally by a man named Epaphras, who was converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He may have been assisted in planting that church by a man named Philemon. It's possible that Philemon's son was pastoring the church. You'll remember Philemon had a runaway slave. That runaway slave's name was Onesimus. It's possible that when this letter was sent by Paul to the Colossians, it was carried by Tychicus and Onesimus. And possibly Onesimus carried that letter of Philemon to Philemon himself. Paul spoke of his suffering in this letter. His purpose was to preach Christ. He said, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And isn't that, if that could be said to be the mission statement of Paul, isn't that the mission statement of this church? We desire to proclaim Christ to warn everyone, to teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I hope that you would say that as we've read through this book of Colossians, that you've grown and that you've matured in Jesus Christ. A big part of the book was spent addressing false teaching. You have the Judaizers who insisted on the observance of days and certain dietary laws. And then the Greeks who believed that spirituality was found in denying the body certain food or certain drinks. And what Paul told these Colossians was that law-keeping and self-denial had the appearance of wisdom. It had the appearance and it seemed like it was promoting religion and asceticism and severity to the body as though these were good things. But he said those actually have no value and stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Sometimes we get into an attitude that if we can just curb our behavior, that it will change us. But really what happens is the heart has to change first, and then that does change the way that we live and the way that we act and the way that we think and the way that we talk. He said the way to please God was to find your identity in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 9, he said, you've put off the old self with its practices, And you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. 
And then we learned last week that this kind of Christ-exalting godliness is not just lofty and heavenly, but that it works out in very practical ways in our lives and in our relationships, which sets up the end of the letter, where this letter gets so practical that it names names. And so we'll look at these names that show up and these people that show up in the very end of the letter of Colossians in the fourth chapter. I was listening to a podcast this week from the Denison Forum, and they were talking to a professor about Christian ecology, or what he called earth-keeping. He said, the Bible begins with rivers, important rivers and important trees. And then he said it ends with important rivers and important trees. And so he told the podcast host, he said, so rivers and trees are important. And I thought, well, that, that's, a very, uh, that's a very interesting way to look at it. Now, what is he doing there? He's noting something that when we study the Bible, we call top and tail. Sometimes when you look at the first thing mentioned and you look at the last thing mentioned, you can get an idea of what's being emphasized in a story or in a song or in a news report that you read. And many times when you look at the top, the beginning and the tail, the end of things, you do find the theme or the purpose. Well, the top and tail of Paul's letter, all of his letters really, are usually the same thing. Paul is talking about people. He's talking to people. He's ministering to people. When the word church is mentioned, what do you normally think about? I think as hard as we try, very often when we think of the church, we think of buildings. We try to think of other things, but most of the time what comes to mind are buildings, programs, music, doctrine, ideas, history. But the church really isn't primarily those things. Just like Charlton Heston flipped out and said, Soylent Green is... Okay, all two of you that knew that reference... Soylent green is people. Uh, Look it up later on Wikipedia. (laughs) You'll be disturbed. (laughs) But the church is people. And on top of that, the church is ordinary, regular, sinful people. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that all those things I mentioned aren't important. Is it important to have a building? Yes. Is it important to have right doctrine? Yes, good programs. You want the music to be excellent. And by the way, didn't these kids do a great job on that special? So good, so good. Um, they're a little bit, they're a lot country. That was not much rock and roll. So that was very, very good, uh, uh, playing and singing. And they've really been looking forward to doing that for a long time, so I'm glad they got to do that. But we want the music to be good. We want it to be God-honoring, Christ-exalting. We need a good church covenant. We need a good statement of faith. We need good policies. But even in the midst of all that, the church is about people. A church that ceases to be about something other than reaching people and teaching people and equipping people for ministry will be a church that's off mission. It will be a church that does not have the purpose down. It will be a church that has drifted from its mission and drifted from its purpose. The church is about people. The church is built on relationships. Discipleship takes place in the context of relationships. And so it turns out when we think about the church, 
really what the church is, is a bunch of people who are related and connected to one another by a common love for their big brother, Jesus, and a common love for one another. That means that the church is a family. And a family is made up of certain and particular people. When you think about your family, you don't just think about a crowd, do you? I mean, nobody does that. But isn't it easy for us to come to a church and by, by relative, well, it's hard to tell if our church is large or small. Did you know the average Southern Baptist congregation has less than 100 people in it? So relatively speaking, we're a, we're a larger church, but there are churches where you could go this morning if you drove to the Metroplex or to a larger area. You could go to a church where there are literally thousands of people gathered in one room. And the church could very easily, in that sense, just seem like a mob or a crowd of people that are getting together. In many ways, when we think about the first century as they gathered there on Solomon's Colonnade, there were thousands of people there. There was one day where thousands of people were added to the church in one day and baptized. It's easy possibly to think of the church as a crowd, but we can't let ourselves do that. The church, we don't just think of it as a crowd. Just like we don't think of our family as a crowd, we think of it as the relationships and the interconnection and all the different ways that we relate to one another. So we could try this. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to try it today because there would be no time. But let's just say that I handed somebody, well, we could just start with Lori. And if I handed Lori a ball of yarn and I said, throw this to somebody in this room that you have a relationship with, that you've had a conversation with, someone that's prayed for you, someone that's helped you grow in Christ. Well, if we did that with everybody and everybody was just throwing the yarn every time they got a piece of yarn or the ball of yarn, every time it came back to them, what would this room look like? It looked like a big spider web, wouldn't it? It would look like a big interconnected web of all these different intersecting relationships where people have touched each other's lives where people are depending on one another. It would look like a big net. And isn't that what it's supposed to be? The place where we can fall whenever we struggle and we can find support. The place that holds us up and spurs us on to good works in Jesus Christ. So when you ask somebody, what do you do at church? You know, it's easy for us to answer, I teach, I cook, I play guitar. I run the camera, I greet at the door, I hand food to the needy. But rather, what we should say, what do you, what do, you do at church? So, no, I don't do at church, I am the church. I am at church. I'm part of a family, I am part of a family that helps one another follow Jesus. One of the most helpful uh, illustrations I've ever heard was an illustration in a book called The Trellis and the Vine. And if you'll remember, I talked about the Trellis and the Vine book during the pandemic. And the the very beginning of the Trellis and the Vine book, they said, what if, and they were just doing uh, just an exercise, this book was written years ago, they said, what if there was some kind of global pandemic that happened? Now remember, this is written in maybe 2010 or something like that. What if there was a global pandemic and people were not allowed to meet in large groups? And the largest groups you can meet in were groups of five or ten. Would your church survive? And then what happened a few years later? That actually happened. And we were able to see, you know, in many ways, the the pandemic did change the church, or at least it hopefully focused us in on the things that are important. 
But the trellis and the vine made the argument that there's kind of a couple of ways to think about church when we think about church or how church operates and functions. He said the spiritual organic work, the actual church work, the relationships, the discipleship, the, the, the people work, he called that the vine. So the people work is the vine. Well, when you've got a bunch of vine growing at your house, you, you don't just let it grow in a big blob on the ground. What do you do? You build a trellis on the side of the house, and the trellis lets the vine grow up. And so as the, as the vine is growing up and maybe growing out, you have to add more trellis because the trellis supports the actual uh, organic growth. So we could say at a church, we have the spiritual growth, and then what supports the spiritual gr- growth are the programs and the structures and the building and all those things. But here's the sad thing that often happens at church. We get such a good trellis going that we just like to build trellis and we don't grow vine. But what's the point of the trellis if you don't have the vine? So the church work, the the hard part, the organic spiritual growth, that's the vine. That's what the church really is. Don't mistake the trellis for the vine. And why do we do that? Why do we often grow trellis or, or build trellis instead of grow vine? Because it's easier to build trellis. Vine work is hard. Vine work is not just coming to church every Sunday. It takes place day to day in informal settings like in your home, in your friendships, in the workplace, in your parenting, in your marriage, in your friendships. It takes place in those moments maybe before church or after church when you go out to eat and you discuss spiritual things and when you meet with someone and you spur them on to to good works and following Jesus and becoming more like Christ. The trellis of the organization and the programming and many of the things that I administrate, the, the purpose of it is not just to administrate. The purpose of it is to make vine work possible. The, the actual spiritual work, the, the human element, the relational element, you can't program that. Just like we, we kind of laugh sometimes. Remember we, we did a revival in Seymour this year. And by the way, that was a, a, we'll talk about this passage in a second, that, that that was something that very much encouraged that church in Seymour. But he called me up and he said, I've put a revival on the calendar. And then he stopped and he said, now I know you can't really do that. <laughs> you, you can't tell God, you can't just say, God, we're going to schedule a revival in right here and we're going to expect you to move. Okay, that, that is not the way it works. We can't program a revival. You can't program spirituality. Who has to give that? It only comes from above. It only comes from the Holy Spirit. But there's a human element. There's a relational element. And that's what the church is truly about. That's why the church exists. is because it's actual people. Again, as I go back to that idea of your, your family. If I said, hand me a family photo, you wouldn't hand me a picture of your house. You wouldn't hand me a picture of a crowd. You would hand me a picture of specific people. Certain people. The church is made up of certain people. Now, that, a lot of people would rather go to a church that seems like a crowd because once you get down into other people's lives, things get messy, and what you find out is just about everybody is weird. You're thinking, I'm, I'm not weird. 
Yeah, you're weird. You're weird. We're all, we're all quirky. We're, we're, there's, some, there's something about all of us that makes us not perfect, right? We're all sinners. We all have a hard time staying on task. It's very difficult to work with us, right? We're, we're, we can all be difficult as much as we try not to be. Sometimes the further you distance yourself away from people, you would say maybe it's easiest to maintain my spirituality. It would be easier for me to be a perfect Christian if I went and lived in a cave, but is that God's plan? No, God's plan is for us to be together. As difficult and as hard as that actually is, you would hand me, if I asked for a picture of your family, a, a, a specific group of people. A church, now we can think about the church that's existed for all time, that's made up of all the people that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. We might call that the universal church or the Catholic church. or might just with a little c. That's what that is. We could talk about that church. But a church always will express itself in a place. It's always a specific group of people that gather in a specific place, that baptize people, that celebrate the Lord's Supper together, disciple each other. That's what a church is. It's always going to manifest itself in a place. So you'll notice these letters are called Colossians, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians. Why? Because they had an address. He didn't just send, he didn't just say, I'm writing this letter and giving it to the church. Well, where would it have gone? He had to put an address on that thing and send it to people. So that because the church expresses itself in a local place. And it's interesting being a pastor, you tell people, oh, what do you do? What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm non-denominational. And I always tell them, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm totally denominational. I always, that's my big joke. I say, yeah, I'm totally denominational. I'm a Southern Baptist, you know. How can you get any more denominational than that? And I say, yeah, I'm, and they'll say, well, uh, you know, you don't, you, don't, you don't have to be a part of a church to be a Christian. And what I, how I usually translate that and, I'm, and how I'm usually right is what they're actually saying is, I don't go to church anywhere, but I'm a Christian. But really, God's plan, you know, the, the Great Commission, His plan, it, it is the plan A, and there's no plan B, is the church. He didn't say, on your individual relationship with Christ, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to put this truth. He said, he said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is the plan. And so when the church, as it has for all these years, manifests itself in a local place, you wind up being with actual real people. And doing real ministry. And it's so awesome that at the end of these letters, you see these actual people and they're named. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4 of Colossians. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, this is the slave of Philemon who had run away and is now being sent back home to his master that he ran away from. And we can read the book of Philemon and we can understand what goes on there. Our faithful and beloved brother, that's how Paul describes Onesimus, who is one of you. He's from where you're from. And they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, that's interesting. He doesn't say anything about Onesimus being a runaway slave here. That was carried in that personal correspondence to Philemon. And what did Paul tell Philemon in that letter about Onesimus? He said, whatever 
he owes you, I'll pay it. Is there a a clearer, more beautiful picture of the gospel anywhere in the Bible than that? Isn't that what Jesus has done? We have Onesimus wronged Philemon. He ran away from Philemon. He, He was a disobedient servant. Now he's coming back. And he could be punished. What did Philemon have the right to do to Onesimus? To kill him. And Paul says, whatever he owes you, charge it to me. When we stand before God, he has every right to punish us for our sins. Because we've sinned against him, we have been disobedient servants. Now, slavery's wrong, but the fact that God is our creator obligates us to serve him. There's nothing wrong with God demanding our obedience and service because he is our creator. And we have gone our own way. The Bible says like all like sheep, we've gone astray. Just like a sheep runs off and goes away. That's how we've gone in our sin. But one day we're going to stand before God. And we're going to be judged. And if God were to, to judge us based upon our sinfulness, he would have every right to destroy us, to send us to an eternal hell, last forever, to be punished. And yet our big brother Jesus went to the cross. He took our sins upon himself. He died a substitutionary sacrificial death for us. He was laid in a tomb. Three days later, he rose again, and now he's ascended up into heaven. And so one day when we stand before God, the Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. When we come to our judgment, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we stand before God at the judgment, what Jesus is going to say, whatever wrongs Chad's done, they were charged against me at the cross and paid in full. My sins will be forgiven. And on top of that, Jesus takes the perfect life that he lived and he gives it to me so that I will stand before God. My sins forgiven and I'll be perfectly righteous. Onesimus was going to go back home. He could be subject to punishment or even death. But how about Paul saying that? Whatever wrong he's done, charge it to me. And what should Philemon's response have been at that point? How can I hold something against Philemon when I've been forgiven so much by my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Look at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision, or the only Jews, uh, that were national, uh, or ethnically Jewish people, that were with him, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling. Look what Epaphras was doing for this church. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And so if you've studied your Bible and you see Demas show up, you know that later, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul will say that Demas actually, because he loved the world, deserted Paul. And so we see here, this was a time earlier in Paul's ministry where Demas was with Paul and serving Paul. In verse 15, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. 
and see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul had sent both of them letters, and they were going to trade letters so that they could be blessed by both letters. And then verse 17, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. A few observations from our text. Here are the people. Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, and Paul. We have this picture many times of Paul sitting in prison, writing these letters alone. But that's not the normal case. We can see from this passage that there was a team with Paul. So first, whether we're talking about mission efforts or the church or our own discipleship, the Christian life is not something that is undertaken alone. It wasn't just about Paul. I mean, we tend to think that way because we like to put people on a pedestal and we, we love sort of the cult of personality ministries. We love the guys that seem like super Christians. But nobody is that, are they? You know, uh, there's a team. And, and normally when you see uh, uh, somebody, a movie star or a musician or, or, or a politician or whatever, there's a whole team of people that are making whatever they do possible. It's the same here with Paul. The Christian life is not something undertaken alone. It's not intended to be undertaken alone. Isn't it great that Paul was not alone, but that he was encouraging and being encouraged by other people? As a church, that's what we need to be doing. Secondly, notice what these people are engaged in. They're welcoming one another. They're comforting one another. They're praying for one another. They're representing one another. He says, Epaphras who is one of you, he greets you, verse 12, and he's struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. He's worked hard for you, Paul says. I read a story about a lady who had bought an old house and she was working to fix the house up. And the whole house needed to be repainted. And so she noticed at the end of the days as she had been down on her hands and knees painting the baseboards of the house, when she stood up, she noticed how sore her legs were and how sore her knees were and how they were actually hurting. And she thought to herself, she said, my knees hurt because I've been painting. But my knees never hurt because I've been praying. What if I put this kind of devotion toward prayer. There was a minister named Edward Payson. He ministered in Portland, Maine, and he was given the nickname Praying Payson because it was documented that he spent so much time in prayer that the floor beside his bed was worn out, and you could see where his knees had been as he had been praying, struggling in prayer for his community. Third, we see that doing ministry with other people is messy, as I've alluded to already. We have Mark mentioned. We have Demas mentioned. Remember what happened with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. In the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas set out, and they set out with Mark. But what does Mark do? The going gets tough, and Mark leaves and abandons them. 
And so the next time they're going to go out, Barnabas says, on this next journey, I'd like to take Mark. And what does Paul say? No, we're not taking him again. He deserted us. And there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And so Barnabas and Mark go off one way because of this disagreement over Mark, and Paul and Silas go off in another direction on their missionary journey. And you would think, wow, Paul really washed his hands of Mark. But isn't it amazing that when we get to the book of Colossians, while Paul's in prison, who's there with him? Mark. Mark is there. And Paul goes on later to say in another letter that Mark is helpful to him and his ministry. It's awesome to see Mark and Paul back together and Mark becoming useful to Paul because it reminds us that, yes, ministry can be hard. There can be disagreements. There can be times where we let each other down, but what a great and open heart Paul had toward Mark. And even Mark, when you think about his heart toward Paul, here's a guy that had rejected him, but he says, you know what? Even though we've got a past, the past is the past. I'm sorry. Paul probably said, I'm sorry too. Let's, let's work together for the Lord. It always makes my heart sink when there are troubles in the church, when someone comes to me and there's a, a personal problem between two people. And usually what I say is, well, would you like for, would you like for me to set up a meeting so you and that person, we could all three meet together and try to work this out? What does people normally say? No, I just thought you could maybe fix the problem for me. <laughs> it's even worse when I'm the problem. That really breaks my heart. It also makes my heart sink when I hear somebody or see online that someone is critical of our church. And, and what happens when one person starts complaining? You know what happens? Everybody starts complaining. And it opens up the floodgates of criticism. And I realize that there's a lot of church hurt out there. There's a lot of people with hurt feelings. And, and the reason that people get their feelings hurt in church is because look at us. Like this room is even a good example of just how close we are together. When you're actually living your life in conjunction with other people, and you got people that come from all these different backgrounds, and we're all so varied, and we have different personalities, and we have different preferences, when you get all those people together, there's bound to be some friction. There's bound to be times where people don't see things the same way. And so, yes, the church is a place where a lot of people get hurt because it's one of those places that sort of uh, lends itself to the type of relationship where there is friction. And where people, even though they love the Lord and they're doing their best to seek the Lord, can come to uh, legitimate disagreements over things. And so we have to work very careful in our relationships not to hurt one another, but to be gracious in our disagreements. If we dare to be a church, then we are daring to be vulnerable to being hurt, and to hurting one another. And sometimes people, they leave. They cannot handle the hurt. Sometimes after they've been gone for a while, they come back. And then sometimes they go again. And then they come back. And what are we called to do? We're called to be patient and to demonstrate faithfulness and love. When I see someone that's been out of the fellowship for a long time, hasn't come to church or been involved in things that we're doing, of course I pray for them. But when I see them, I say, we miss you. It's not the same without you. And I try very hard not to have my feelings hurt. I think it's easy for us when someone decides they don't want to be around us anymore. It's easy for us to get our feelings hurt, isn't it? 
And it's an interesting thing where someone stops coming to church and they want someone to reach out to them, but the people that are at the church think, well, you left because you don't like us. And we tend to get our feelings hurt and we tend to take things personal. What I try to remind myself is if someone's not coming to church, it probably has probably a 99.5% chance that it has nothing to do with me. The people that decide to not to come to church when they wake up in the morning, I'll sit there, my, I'll sit up here later this afternoon, I'll think, well, I really, that sermon stunk and nobody was there and everybody probably hates me and I'll just, you know, you just devolve, we all just know how to throw ourselves a real good pity party, don't we? And then I stop and I remember, I was like, no, no, nobody was even thinking about me. There was all this other stuff going on in their life and it has nothing to do with me. But this is an issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's between people and God. And I'll just remember, say, I haven't gone anywhere. We haven't gone anywhere. I've been here for the last 52 weeks. I'll be here for the next 52 weeks. We'll be meeting faithfully. We're not going to quit fellowshipping together. We're not going to quit gathering together to worship the Lord. We're not going to quit pursuing people. We're not going to quit inviting people. And we will be here when people are gone, and we will be here when people come back, and how will we be? Arms wide open, happy to see anybody that walks through those doors. That is our posture. That's our commitment, because we understand life is hard. Life is messy. Church is messy. Relationships are messy. And when we see Demas and Mark show up in this passage, we say, yes, church is messy. Life is messy. Things are hard now. Things were hard then, too. And we're talking about the Apostle Paul in that context, writing the New Testament. Is God working in that situation? Yes. Is God working in this situation? Yes. God is working. God is doing something. God is doing something in your life. God is doing something in their life. Let's trust the the Holy Spirit to move and to work, and let's depend upon him. Let's Let's not try to be the Holy Spirit, but let's just try to be faithful. And let the Holy Spirit move and work and open up doors. Because ministry is messy. And people are going to drift in and out. People are going to get their feelings hurt. The fact that people get, be a peacemaker. Be one that tries to bring people together. When you find out that you're the problem, be a peacemaker. And make peace and resolve whatever issue it is that you have with other people. In that way, we're, we're not trying to tell people that at the church we're perfect. We're not trying to tell people that we're here because we think we're good or better than anybody else. We know there's going to be problems because we know that when we gather here with 250 other people that we're gathering with 250 sinners. There's going to be problems. But where we show that the Lord is working where we show God's grace is that we don't handle problems and disagreements the way that the world handles them. But we talk to each other. We work things out knowing that, that we want to please our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so those are all just... Just uh, amazing things that we see going on in, the, in, the, in this letter. Then we see cooperation as well. Cooperation with other churches. They have a letter. Go read their letter. And what they would do is they would send somebody. The reason we have all these copies of all these letters, you know there's 5,000 extant copies of different manuscripts in the New Testament? It's the most widely attested book from the ancient world that exists. So you can read books uh, or, um, read manuscripts and read uh, works from that predate Christ or that are in the first or second century, and they'll, they'll find a book that has four copies well attested. There are, there are at least uh, 5,000 
manuscripts, uh, portions of the New Testament that are out there. Well, how did all those portions of the New Testament get out there? They would do this. Paul just wrote a letter to the Colossians. They would send people up there to make a copy of the letter that Paul sent the Colossians. So that whenever the Bible was canonized, when they kind of made it official, these are the books that we recognize as the Bible. You know what? Those books, they weren't just telling the church, okay, here's the books to read. They were acknowledging the books that the churches already had and they were already using. So they, had, they already had the collection of the New Testament books because they'd all made copies of it and they'd all considered these to be uh, written by an apostle uh, or someone with a close relationship with the apostle and they considered these books to be divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. That these were God's writings to the church. This is how God preserved his word that he gave to the apostles for us as he does it in writing. And so they would go, hey, they've got this letter, you've got this letter, read each other's letters. They would make copies of these letters. So we see the cooperation there. We see Paul telling them to greet Nympha, who has a house in Laodicea. And this is interesting. What this means is that this woman was probably a wealthy believer. And so the, the, the houses that they would meet in were the people that had houses large enough to meet in. And so he was saying, greet her and the house that meets in her church. We as Southern Baptists understand cooperation. We can do more together than we can do apart. And we believe that since the beginning of our convention. We give and serve and help other congregations. The First Baptist Church of Olney doesn't just exist for the First Baptist Church of Olney. We exist for the nations. We pray for and encourage one another, but other churches as well. We help churches all over the world by training pastors, providing education and resources. We maintain mission organizations and seminaries for the training of ministers. Every time you put a dollar in the plate, you are helping to fund missionaries all over the world. The sun never sets on a Southern Baptist mission effort. Every time you put that dollar in the plate, you are helping plant churches in cities that need a church. You are helping to train pastors in one of our six seminaries. You are helping to provide disaster relief for people who suffer, not only in the United States of America, but also around the world. When there have been terrible earthquakes in countries that are closed off to the gospel, somehow, and you'd have to call over there and ask, but in all of these different nations where there have been terrible disasters, somehow even our Texas Baptist Disaster Relief is able to get over there and set up water purification uh, uh, machines. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, what they look like or how they do it, but they're able to provide clean water and just within a matter of days after a, a, a disaster for thousands and thousands of people every single day. And whenever we give, we're not just giving the money in the plate to stay here. A portion of that money that we give goes out. When we do the Lottie Moon, we, we've, we've set a goal, $10,000. How much of that's going to stay in Olney? Zero. That's all going to go to the mission field. How much of it's going to go to administrative costs? Zero. It's all going to go to the mission field. And, and Lottie Moon, we named that offering after Lottie Moon, who was a missionary to China uh, in, the in the early 1900s. And so we named that after her because that's a foreign mission offering. And so that's going to go to nations and works that are going on outside of our own country. The goal, the goal is, is to live this Christian life together, but to also help others to live the Christian life all around the globe. We serve one another in many ways. We have to serve according to how God has gifted us. 
We press on through the heartache and the difficulty of church work, and we seek to be a blessing to each other, but also to churches all over the globe. And so it's, it's amazing to read, uh, to read the end of these letters and to see how we're still doing these kinds of things even today. That church really hasn't changed. People really aren't that different. They didn't have iPhones and televisions and football and all the things that we have to have now. Uh, maybe we don't have to have football, but it would be, life would not be as good without it. Uh, but they were, in a sense, the same as we are. They cared about the same sorts of things we cared about. Life was difficult. Relations were difficult. But they pressed on serving Christ. I'm running out of time. So here we'll end the sermon. Look at verse 17. I want to leave you with these two thoughts. Fulfill and remember. So in verses 17 and 18, underline the word fulfill and underline in verse 18 the word remember. Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you've received from the Lord. If you look at the letter of Philemon, second verse, it seems like Archippus is Philemon's son. Probably he's the pastor at this little church in Colossae that's being threatened by these false teachers. And what does Paul tell him? Don't quit. Archippus, don't quit. How many of you are going through something in your life and you are tempted to quit? Don't quit. It was hard for Archippus. He was dealing with false teachers. He was dealing with his church, following after other people and not listening to him. Don't quit. Don't quit the assignment. Why not? Because that assignment did not come from Archippus. That assignment did not come from Paul. What does it say? Fulfill the ministry you've received from the Lord. It's God's ministry. If you've received a ministry from the Lord, don't quit, but fulfill it. See it to the end. We are given a mission at First Baptist Church. We're given a mission by our own master, Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 28. To love people, to disciple people, to teach them all that, that, that God has commanded them. Let's not fulfill some other ministry. Let's fulfill that one that the Lord has given us, and let's make sure that we fulfill it. And then Paul says, remember my chains. Remember, remember, remember when you are feeling like you want to quit. When, when, when church and life and relationships and everything is messy, don't think of all the people that have upset you, but rather remember all the people that have served and sacrificed so that you might hear and know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Get your mind off the negative and think about all the people that have loved and served you. It's a long chain of faithfulness to bring you to Christ, isn't it? Somebody shared the gospel with you, somebody shared the gospel with them, and on and on and on and on up the line. People like these. Some people were in prison for the sake of the gospel. Some wealthy, some poor, some Jewish, some Gentile. Some who failed, some who were disappointed by betrayal and abandonment, but they remained faithful. Remember them. Today, remember all of the missionaries who are planting churches in hard-to-reach cities in the United States of America, who are out there in the field. They're planting and they're working and in, in, in doing mission work in a closed country where the gospel's not even able to be proclaimed uh, vocally and openly. And we have a chance today to remember them and to help them fulfill their ministry when we pray and when we give. And when we strengthen and when we encourage, we are recognized that we are called to do vine work, 
the hard spiritual work of relationship, discipleship, evangelism right here in Olney as the Lord opens up and gives us opportunities to do that. Wherever your sphere of influence is, be a light for Jesus right there. Who are the people that would love to come hear Bible preaching or come to your Sunday school class? Why not invite them? Or maybe they're not ready for that. Maybe if you invited somebody to church, they would look at you like you were from another planet. But maybe you could begin to talk to them about the truth of God's Word. Maybe you could begin to love them and point them to Jesus Christ through your friendship with them because they're in your circle. God's put them there for a reason. It's about reaching all the people that God loves. It's about helping each other become more like Christ. The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. What is the mission you've been given? And the question is, will you be faithful to fulfill it? Let's pray together.